This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Jason Schulman, author of the six-book series, Practical Guides to Enlightenment, Awakening, and Healing. Jason is an American spiritual teacher whose original work springs from his Judaic and Buddhist background. He is the founder of A Society of Souls, the School for Non-Dual Healing and Awakening, based in the United States and the Netherlands. There he teaches the distinctive body of non-dual work he has developed to awaken the human spirit, non-dual healing, impersonal movement, and the work of return. Jason's main concern has been to develop paths of healing, the mind, body, and spirit based on his own understanding of the difficulties inherent in the human condition. Through his studies and practice, Jason has developed a unique perspective on human consciousness and the nature of existence. His work seeks to translate this perspective into a replicable and clearly delineated path for other seekers of truth to follow. He has been especially interested in applying personal spiritual work to methods of transforming society at large. To that end, he has created the Magi Process, a non-dual method of working with conflicts between people, institutions, and governments. He is the author of numerous monographs and books, and several albums of his work as a singer and songwriter. Jason Schulman, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we're happy to have invited you, and um, I'm also happy to ask you our now usual first question of first-time guests, <laughs> and that is to invite you to cast your mind back to childhood and youth and uh, invite you further to um, connect with any um, impressions that were important to you that you might now, in retrospect, see as harbingers of the direction that your work would take in your adult life. And you've been doing what you've been doing for quite a while, so... um, Anything that comes up along those lines, uh, we we would uh, invite you to uh, discuss. Sure. <clears throat> you know, in the conversations that I've had with other people over the years, questions like this have come up. Hmm. And um, it's easy for me to cast my mind back, as you say, and tell you some of the details, which I will because some of them are interesting. But I think as I've gotten older and thought about myself and thought about my path through life, I have a slightly different feeling about it than I ever have had before. Mm. And I I think I'll I'll start there, even though it's a little bit more unusual. When I look back, starting from here where I am now, and I start casting myself back to my early spiritual seeking days to my days as a rock and roll performer and writer and and my days as a uh, young poet in uh, 
in college and high school and going further back to the first poems that I wrote as a young 12-year-old poet and going further back to what was interesting me and what I read all the way back, <clears throat> really, I see a total consistency. I didn't have a, hmm, a turning point. I had many turning points where I was willing to face certain things, willing to give up certain things, willing to <clears throat> enter new territory and things like that. But the main theme, the sinew and bones of what I'm doing now was there in embryo all the way through. And that's a good thing for me to remember because <laughs> it, it, it shows me, it's proof positive that I didn't invent myself, that it wasn't through my own power, <clears throat> so to speak, uh, that this theme came into existence. It was through my own efforts and power that I worked at it and put out effort and thought about it and wrote about it and, uh, and had teachers about it and taught about it and so on. All of that was through my own efforts. But the blueprint for being the kind of person that wanted to, above all things, find out why I was here, where I was going, what life was about, was imprinted in me in some manner that all I can do is be grateful for. And then it puts my path in perspective, in a different perspective than it might have if I thought that I had created my path, so to speak, uh, which is also true. They saw they're simultaneously codependently arising things. But this is the way I think about it these days. You know what I mean? <clears throat> Does that make sense to you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I totally get it. I'm wondering, though, if there are any particular examples that you could point to where that was, um, where that set, and I'm assuming that it set you apart from other people around you, or that was your perception at that age. Sure. Age. Sure. No, it definitely set me apart. So the earliest memory I have, and I've recounted this memory, but it's, it's imprinted on me. <clears throat> I was watching television with my mom one day and a news article came on and it was some sort of a burial. It was some sort of a funeral. And um, I asked my mom what was going on. I must have been four. I'm not sure when this person died. Yeah, four years old, maybe four and a half. And I said, what's, what's that? And she said, well, that's a very powerful man who died. And I remember thinking and then asking her, what happens to all his things? Can he take all of his things with him to where he went? <clears throat> so I had a, a, a strong awareness of death from my earliest times. If... Uh, if we wanted to look at it astrologically, I'm a Scorpio rising, and that highlights that particular concern, death and resurrection, the phoenix as a, as a symbol of that. So that's one, one of my earliest memories. A slightly earlier memory was being in my grandmother's garden. We lived in a tenement, grandmother on the bottom, 
bus on the second floor, my cousin on the third floor, and a renter on the top. And crouching down and talking to a butterfly for about what seemed to me to be the whole afternoon. It's probably five minutes, but it was the whole afternoon for me. So <clears throat> already I was having different sorts of concerns. I was thinking uh, at an early age about life and death. If I then move forward a little bit, I somehow, uh, although this is not going to be a, uh, a visual thing for people to see, uh, just as you have books or recordings in the background on your shelves, I have a, uh, a bookshelves here that holds, I don't know, a couple thousand books. Books have always been a, a path for me. Um, <clears throat> uh, books fall into my lap. There are things that I buy and things that are given to me and things that I seek out. So when I was a kid, <laughs> the books, the first important book that I found for myself was a book of Confucius's, is how they put it, Confucius quotes, quotes from Confucius. It was a mentor paperback book. So at 11, I was looking at that kind of stuff and thinking about that. Then, and, and I may be going into too much detail here, but I'm going to go for it. Other books after Confucius that I found were science fiction. Um, uh, Isaac Asimov, who I ended up doing a book with many years later. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. In fact, I'm looking at, he wrote for me The Three Laws of Robotics in his own handwriting. Wow. It's the only copy in existence of The Three Laws <laughs> in his handwriting. Uh, anyway, I'm very proud of that. I love that. So science fiction, which gave me, uh, you know, just the fascination with nature and with science and all of that. And then when I, by the time I was around 13 or so, 14, I came upon a book called Ilan Vital, um, Henri Bergson, the French philosopher. Uh, I think it was, he doesn't, I think that was maybe a chapter from one of his books. I don't know. But so all of those, my concerns, you know, simultaneously, my concerns in life were music, because I'm a, I'm a songwriter and singer, and uh, girls, because I am uh, had a strong sex drive. And um, those were the, that, was, that was what my life was like. But it was always, even the music that I was writing was introspective and, and so on. And by the time I was, by the time I was uh, <clears throat> 17, I was a Zen student. I started my uh, at, at 17. Um, my friend, do uh, you have time for another tale? Sure. Absolutely. So... <clears throat> <laughs> there I was in college, and I was reading uh, a book called Three Pillars of Zen by Philip Kaplow. In fact, someplace over here, I have a little Buddha from his desk. Hmm. Oh, there it is. I'll show it to you a little bit later. So I was reading that, and my friend uh, Michael Wenger uh, 
who went on to be president of Zen Center in uh, San Francisco and is now a Zen teacher and is at the end of his career uh, in Oakland. Um, we decided to learn to meditate. And we uh, went to one of our apartments, I don't remember whose, and we would set a timer for five minutes. And we read instructions in Philip Kaplow's book, and we'd sit there and uh, look at the timer probably 20 times in that five minutes because we couldn't believe that so much time had passed. That seemed like an eternity to us. And then we said, okay, now we've conquered five minutes. So we're going to go up to, uh, I had a, a musician friend who said he had a cabin up in the, in the winter. <laughs> we went up to this unheated cabin in the winter to meditate together. And uh, we met his grandfather, who was an elderly Japanese gentleman. Huh, it's amazing. I haven't thought about this in years who literally, this is a great story, he went around the Catskills planting cherry trees. That's what he was doing over the years. So anyway, he came out to talk with us, and he stood there in the cold. And here's these two young college students standing there. And he's standing like a tree, doesn't move, talks for a half hour. We're hopping from one foot to the other. We're cold. We don't know how to stand still. So we sort of met somebody from a different culture who symbolized for us that something else was going on. So at that point, I kept searching for what to do. <clears throat> and I had had a very powerful experience in college with um, the teacher Ramakrishna. If you know that particular fellow? Not personally, <laughs> but of him. <laughs> So Ramakrishna, I, I, I had a very powerful experience where I was the editor-in-chief of, of the college uh, literary magazine. And uh, I was simultaneously reading everything I could read about spirituality. And I was reading Ramakrishna and had this very powerful spiritual experience and became incapable of judging which poems to put in the magazine or not. Ah. Because I looked at each poem, and each poem was somebody's soul. <clears throat> Even the simplest, most terrible poems, from a point of view, it was somebody's feelings. And each one of them sparkled to me. Everything sparkled to me. The couch sparkled, the floor sparkled. And... Um, when I missed my deadlines to uh, bring in what I my list, uh, my other associate editors or whatever, my staff came in and they wanted to do an intervention. They said, what's wrong with you? I said, I can't choose. How can you choose between souls? And they said, oh, snap out of it, please. <laughs> so I went further and uh, found that there was a Ramakrishna Vivekananda Center in New York City. And I said, well, maybe I'll go to that. So I went there. And, you know, at the same time as I'm telling you all these nice stories, uh, my personality was uh, deeply wounded and deeply injured. Uh, I was uh, arrogant. Uh, I was judgmental. I was fearful. Um, it was a lot of things. So I, I go to this Sunday service 
I see all these people. It's kind of like a, a weird church. And there's someone up front speaking and other people listening, and I'm looking at them, and they were old and strange people. And so I listen to the sermon, and then the teacher comes out, or the minister comes out to shake hands with people as they are leaving. And his name was uh, Swami Nikikilanda. And he must have been, I'm guessing now, 85 at the time. So he takes my hand and he looks right through me. <clears throat> and, you know, I hadn't met anybody in the spiritual world. And this guy is looking right through me. And I had never experienced anything like that. I was shaken by it. So I went home uh, shaken. And then Michael and I had heard... <clears throat> that there was um, a Zen center near the school. I couldn't believe it. So we walked up and down. It was Brooklyn College. We walked up and down uh, Flatbush Avenue looking for this storefront place. Couldn't find it the first time out. The second time, we found a place called the Little Library. Am I going into too much detail here? Do you want to hear this? No, no, no I'm, I'm fascinated. So, so <clears throat> little library. What it was was a lending library, a free lending library of spiritual books. You'd walk in and it would say Judaism, <clears throat> and this is the way it said it then. I you know it was back then. Muslim, <laughs> Buddhist, um, uh, Sufi, whatever. <clears throat> this was a an, a thing run by a woman named Doris. Carlson, her husband, Chester, had invented the Xerox process. <clears throat> so he had a lot of cash because when he invented it up in Rochester, no one wanted it. And finally, a little photographic bought it, and he was able to keep 51% of the stock, Halloid, I think it was called. And he had hundreds of millions of dollars. And his wife, so he, he decided with his money to support democratic institutions. And she decided to create these little libraries. And she had like two or three of them around the country. Hmm. So the guy who <clears throat> was the caretaker of this library was a guy named Rick Hart. Although later he called himself Richard Hart. <clears throat> and he's gone now. And uh, we had our battles and our loves. So everything that I'm saying comes from just truth and love for him. He was a, uh, actually, not metaphorically, a Marine drill sergeant uh, who had been through the Korean War. And was an alcoholic. But not by the time we met him. He was a reformed alcoholic. So he had been through some stuff. And he was studying Zen. I guess maybe for a long time, from the time he was in Korea. Maybe then he was stationed in Japan, I think. So <clears throat> he started gathering a group of young people around him, and he had built a little Zendo in the back of the little library, which wasn't the purview of the little library, by the way, to do that. But... Uh, a, uh, a group of young people 
seven, eight, nine, <clears throat> started a sitting practice with him. And we had an intense sitting practice. We did a session or two-day morning-to-night sitting uh, every month. There were morning sittings and evening sittings. And he was tough. During the sessions in the winter, we were walking barefoot over ice in the backyard. This is a little Brooklyn backyard. It was really intense. And he was a very, very interesting guy uh, and very supportive, uh, especially at that time. So Michael was there. Uh, Jason was there. My now wife, Marlene, was there. Uh, all doing Zen practice um, pretty intensely. And Rick had this magical power. You have to remember, this is the heyday of the spiritual scene in the United States, right? Everybody, all the, all the people are coming over from the East and uh, giving us new teachings and screwing things up as well. All these things are going on. And um, so, for instance, uh, Ramdas was important then. And uh, Rick gets Ramdas to come to Brooklyn to our little storefront. It's a storefront. Wow. And there's Ramdas. So I, I got to hang out with him and sing for him. And, uh, and then uh, uh, Sachi Chananda, Swami Sachat Chananda, comes to Brooklyn to the storefront. And um, who else? Hilda Charlton, who was important in those days comes to Brooklyn, to the storefront. So there were many other people. Um, but the thing was, uh, at that point, my wife was a student of Chogyam Trungpa um, in uh, Colorado. We got to have private meetings with him as well. So it was a very fertile time. Um, and, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I think that was the end of the story, basically. But those are the kinds of things that really have filled my life all the way through, um, along with poetry, writing music. I was convinced I was just going to be a rock and roll musician. Um, that's, that was my trajectory. And um, I'm still putting out albums of music. So, um, you know, I have not, never stopped that. Um, and that's, you know, it both set me apart because even though I, my interests are, are wide and varied, it's practically nothing I'm not interested in. Um, I, I've also been a one trick pony, so to speak. The theme has been a consistent thing throughout my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's fair to yourself, that, that, <laughs> well, that particular phrase. They may, they may have many faces. <laughs> but, <laughs> one circus. Yeah, one circus. There we go. <laughs> three, three rings to be esoteric. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I, so I, I think this is a good point to maybe jump into some of the elements of your work because um, we've looked at a number of your books, in particular The Non-Dual Shaman, and there's – there's some things that you do in that that are interesting. Uh, your, your use of the term non-dual is not uh, the standard stereotype uh, use of the term non-dual. Um, 
And I want to get into this the way you explicate. Yeah. Yeah. The the way, because, because I've heard, I've heard the same concept sort of explicated by uh, uh, a teacher now deceased that we knew Lee Lozowick that uh, called it enlightened duality. And, you know, it's, it's a good one. Yeah, and it's but it's but it captures the spirit. So I, I wanted to start by you know there's a couple of <clears throat> foundational concepts that you un, unpack. Uh, one is that of continuity and density, mm-hmm. and I thought we could talk about that a little bit because um, I think that that speaks to something that I think is unique in your voice in 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 the um, not asserting a primacy of one or the other. But actually, uh, uh, asserting the 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 co manifestation of these what what these concepts as equally important in our search or in our in our in our realization of our nature. Mm, mm. <clears throat> well, let me say first that for me, non duality is not. <laughs> Non-duality for me is just a description of the way the world actually works. It's not a theoretical concept. It's not, it's much more like a rock or a tree or a river. So from that point of view, it's simply the recognition of how the world works. Um, If I could be a little uh, uh, critical for a second, Uh, People mistake, from my perspective, non-duality as being a certain state of mind or a higher consciousness or something special. Really, I think for me, the metaphor would be the word descend, to descend to the earth, to descend to our feet on the ground, that the world is already made this way. And all the obstacles in our personality and in our consciousness keep us from seeing things as they are. And by things as they are, I don't even mean some ultimate uh, things as they are, as if we could view things without our sensory apparatus. Because we're always going to be looking through our sensory apparatus and the filters of our consciousness. Things as they are, I mean the fact that everything literally is interconnected and could not exist without uh, everything else, without everything else. And simultaneously, everything is completely individual and unique. And both of those things, instead of being opposites or in conflict, need each other to be that way. They need each other. One of the examples I give my students sometimes is to uh, take a card and make a line on a white piece of index card. And as soon as we have that line, we have something in the foreground that we look at, which is the black line. But the black line only exists because everything else is white. So we, with that one stroke, we're creating two things background and foreground our untutored or unhealed egos split those apart and and it's not a bad thing either but they split them apart because what's important is the 
running animal or the person we're talking to or the line in front or this tree and not that tree. So we don't pay attention to its silent partner, which in this case is the background. When we are capable of holding both of those codependently arising conditions, our consciousness changes very deeply and doesn't change to something more elevated, although it is also elevated, but changes to something much more simple and straightforward and contactful, if we can put it that way. So my view of non-duality as a natural thing that we often don't understand because of the obstacles in our way, that our work as spiritual beings is mainly to understand our obstacles and heal our obstacles in a certain way. It's not just psychotherapy. It's something beyond that so that we can experience the totality of what it's like to be human. So is the healing something that we do or is it something that happens by ver- by virtue of uh, attaining to this level of awareness that you're describing? Both. Um <clears throat> When you, when you put out the sound of, I want to understand reality long enough, there's eventually an echo. So the echo coming back could be called a spiritual experience, which are good and bad spiritual experiences, not bad experiences, good experiences, good experience, a good spiritual experience, a Kensho, a Satori experience can stand in the way of understanding non-duality as much as a bad experience. Because we get hooked on thinking that it has to be a certain way, which really is not the case. Non-duality really lets us see that the totality of existence is after. So we have two types of things that happen. The call comes from us, an echo comes back toward us. We begin to see that the echo was always in us. We begin to see that it's also not us, as we've defined us in previous times, that this other us is something that includes this unhealed and healed ego and is something yet beyond that. So, uh, you know, it's a cooperative effort that takes a lot of effort on our part personally, but. But but the I I think what I was getting at was uh, that and I I think you're clear about this, uh, both in what you're saying and what you write, that the 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 doing the doing is, in a sense, sounding the aspiration and, and being present to receive the echo as opposed to a kind of more egoic doing, which is, oh, this part of myself is not good. I have to fix it. Yes. But let me, I don't know what I, what the particular parts you're thinking about that I wrote, but let me say there's lots of stuff that needs to be fixed in all of us. So in, in the point of view of non-duality, of the type of non-duality that I entertain, even that sort of effort is allowed. There's nothing that's not 
So, uh, for instance, if I find that I'm a very selfish person and I say, listen, I, I need to be less selfish, it's really great that I notice that, that I've come to awareness of that and that I try not to act it out. Uh, and I do my best to find out what made me selfish, that uh, desperately selfish from my childhood and so on and all of those things. Those don't bring you to enlightenment, to an awakening state, but they, mm, they clear the runway until such time. <laughs> so it's getting too mystical for me. As, as, until such time as we see there never was a runway and it never had to be cleared. That things just as they are was what we were after. That things just as they are suffice to let us be in touch with the highest and the lowest of our human life. You, so, you, oh, good. Well, I was just going to say that, um, I mean, this, this highlights to me, especially the beginning of the, your book, The Non-Dual Shaman. It seems to me that healing is the theme you keep returning to in the first parts of that book. Yes. And, um, and you've just spoken in a way that indicates that your understanding of both the need for healing and the process of healing is <laughs> multi-dimensional, multi-factorial. Um, it seems to me. I mean, I, I, and and so I'm I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more on the subject of healing and sure. and its need. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for asking that. So I'll, I'll tell you a story that I've never uh, really recounted. It's a simple story. Uh, I started uh, a Society of Souls, I don't know, someplace in the mid-90s. And I was a healer. That's what I was doing. I had never intended to be a healer. I really had no interest in healership. I had no interest in teaching people. Uh, that wasn't, I, I was very, very involved in personal uh, spiritual search because of my suffering and wanting to alleviate my suffering. But other people was... <laughs> was a secondary thought for me. So I started, and I won't go into all the stuff that happened about starting that and how that happened, although it's an interesting story. Um, so I was always regrouping the school. I was thinking about it, and I was inventing other modalities to help. Along the way, we had non-dual Kabbalistic healing. We had impersonal movement which is a non-dual movement work, really beautiful. The work of return, which is a self-healing modality, non-dual conflict resolution, uh, all of those things. But I was making diagrams one day, and I said, well, I guess I have to leave healing behind because awakening is really what I'm after. That's really what it is. And I had a kind of uh, revelation that all of it was healing that the human being was meant, uh, I say that in a qualified way, we all have something in us that wants to heal and wants to be a uh, fully human, uh, open-hearted person. We have that in us, no matter how injured we are as humans. And that awakening really was under the rubric of healing. It was a way to heal the soul. 
that if it had any purpose that was going to be bigger than my personal satisfaction, it it would be because it would heal my soul and allow me to reach the ultimate objective, as I might state it now, which is connectedness, kindness, compassion, and love. Because no matter how enlightened you are, you're not going to live forever. You're going to have to face death. You're going to have to have uh, connections with other people whom you love and will leave and who will miss you. All of these things have to be taken into account. So it became clear to me that awakening, which had been elevated to uh, the highest pinnacle of what spiritual life was about, was in fact only a path, yet another path, a good one, but another path to healing what it means to be a human being. So so one, one sense or question I have about this is, that you you do distinguish um, at some point in a non-dual shaman the that what what is often referred to as awakening in the spiritual circuit is a an experience usually it's an event an experience of a uh, transcendental nature of a quote unquote non-dual nature and you point out. I think very astutely that uh, you can have this experience and still you'd be an <laughs> asshole. Uh, and in fact, I mean, I think that's what John Wellwood meant when he uh, talked about spiritual bypassing, that it's possible to get to this, to have this foundational insight. But what you describe as healing to me seems more like a process, which is allowing that insight to ramify through our lives as it's expressed in the immediacy of our existence. I think that's put very beautifully. Um, I would say that um, I'll give you I'll give you a personal example. There I am in college and I'm meditating in my apartment. And I remember distinctly the moment something happened to my body, mind and spirit. And I'm doing uh, Shikantaza Zen meditation. And a classic thing happens, which is I feel this rising power in my spine. And I wasn't after this, you understand. I was just sitting. And it goes to about six feet over my head, like you can't see my hand, but it's like a covering over my head, six feet high. And the only thing I said to myself at that point was, I don't know if I'm asleep or awake. And then everything else was silence. And I come out of that at some point later, and everything was in place in the universe. Everything was in place. Everything was perfect as it was. All of my suffering seemed to have disappeared. Um, Later that week, um, I was walking down the street, still in that state, and it had rained earlier, and a very cold drop of water somehow made its way between my glasses and my face and hit me in the eye. And there happened to have been some shootings in my neighborhood. Unfortunately, there was someone who was sniping at people. And I thought I'd been shot. Hmm. It was like, you know, shock. 
And I, all I did was laugh. It didn't matter. It was kind of like life, death, it's all this blah, 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 blah. Now, I tried to recreate that experience for 20 years. It was an enormous stumbling block because the difference between enlightened satori, let's call that a satori experience, and enlightenment is night and day. I mean, let's, <laughs> it doesn't have to be very esoteric. You meet somebody, a partner, and it's Eros, and you see them on the street and you run toward each other, and you want to get your body as close to their body as you can, and you want to kiss them, and you want to put your mouth on them, and you love them. It's Eros. And then you get married, <laughs> and you go like, wow, this is fantastic. Did you fart in the bedroom? What, what was that? <laughs> and you put your toothbrush in the thing. No, no. In order for love to come at that point, it's an entirely different, as you probably know, as people above the age of five years old, you know that it takes this effort that's an entirely different thing. So the my perspective is that experience, that was a great experience I had, and I had others like that, that shakes you up makes you realize that your ego as your as you as constant as currently constituated did i say that word right constituated i think maybe i said it right is is not who you are that there's something bigger that there's a bigger connection you have a glimpse of the web of the web of being at that point but that's not what enlightenment is enlightenment is I have the web of being, and that's fantastic, and I am missing the web of being, and that's part of my life too. I have it, I don't have it, I don't have it, I have it. The steadiness that we imagine that enlightened masters have is actually not so true. I have a little collection of, uh, of books. <laughs> I don't know how much I can say. <laughs> I have a little collection of pamphlets about Ramana Maharshi because I, have, I had an intimate interaction with him, not in the body. He died in 1950, but I had a very powerful connection with him. And I have a little pamphlets that were published in India that never saw, right? You couldn't get them. I got them. For instance, I have one of them by his attendant. The person who took care of him and in it he's writing down what ramana said to me today he said you know he used to sit on a day bed and people would come for darshan to be in front and ramana said oh god i can't take this anymore i feel like i'm in jail <laughs> now i want to reconcile that ramana with the ramana that everybody loves because he's the ultimate uh, something. They're both Ramana. The enlightenment that I want is the man who's both. I want to be the I want to be the awakened uh, the awakened husband who has a stupid fight with his wife because he's a jerk sometimes, and I want to be the loving husband who will protect my wife and love her because that's who I am. So. Um, 
in light, in, in fact, in, in Zen training, there's a whole series of koans to bring people down from the golden air, to bring you down from enlightenment, because it, I forget the name of what they, they call it the golden chain or something, I forget, in, in some, some uh, literature. But people can get very pompous <laughs> being... <laughs> Awakened masters, yes, you know, I'm, uh, I see the, you know, it's all silence. I am that. Well, how about you're also this, you know, I'm that and I'm this. So <laughs> I lost the thread because I'm having well, I, I, here, but... I'll just, I'll just jump in here to say that it seems to me then your definition and description of healing is about uh, bringing those together. So in that sense, non-duality is uh, is the removal of the distinction in one sense, or at least the appreciation that the distinction holds the, t- the two sides together. But perfectly put. Um, you know, Dogen Zenji, the um, <clears throat> 13th century uh, uh, brilliant Zen teacher and author of the Shobogenzo, the treasury of the Dharma Eye, said that two things. <laughs> you don't find people talking about this a lot. <laughs> One was that nirvana and samsara are equivalent. And the other was nirvana and samsara are both impermanent. When I hear that, I relax (laughs) because the effort to hold those two things apart and to think that you have to achieve nirvana as if there was a nirvana without its background samsara or samsara without its background nirvana, it's a tremendous uh, effort uh, to uphold a lie. So when the lie is removed... And we realize that we're just here. Now, it's not that simple because, Stuart, when you talked before about the effort that's needed, it, we do need to make that effort to find out why we don't feel worthy unless we are special not just good enough, but special, and how awakening and enlightenment is tied to specialness in some way. I I personally, just speaking very personally, have to make an effort every day, many times a day, to be my most enlightened self. And why do I make that effort? (laughs) Because I'm easier to be with that way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah, there's a notion that uh, you bring up that uh, is echoing for me as we're talking, and that's uh, this idea of quality. And, you know, uh, our background, uh, the spiritual language that I think we've worked with mm-hmm. is the uh, fourth way tradition or the Gurdjieff tradition, huh. to some extent, with lots of layers of Buddhism and shamanism and things like that thrown in for a uh, good measure. But, 
in that in that language, there's this idea of the horizontal world and the vertical world. Mm-hmm. And you know, the I've thought of the vertical is not so much a transcendence as much as I, I like the term quality that really rings for me because it's like it's it's not what you're describing is being so much in the world or so much in the body, but the quality is different. If our attention, if we bring a different quality of attention, then the quality of, of what we experience is different. And we, we understand this notionally when we look at art, because we can see fine, fine art and not be able to put our finger on what it is that gives rise to that. We can hear music from a true artist and, distinguish immediately the difference between a technically competent musician because there's something there's a there's a something there that and it's almost inevitable but but this word quality seems to capture that and to bring that just into simple being in the world seems to be what i hear you talking about so if i can extend a little bit first of all i agree with everything you said but if you don't mind i'm going to extend please please yeah so my definition of a great artist is someone who is has enough facility and soul that they can bring the viewer or listener or watcher to that place that fits in with what you're saying, right? So if you look at, I don't know, if you look at uh, Cezanne and, uh, and you see his attention to every piece of air when he's just painting the sky, and he's not satisfied until there, and you get the sum total of it, and you you look at it and you say, ah, and it brings you there. That's the role of a great artist, great dancer, great musician, right? So on and so on. However, everything is quality. And it's not the special condition of great art. Great art is a portal to waking us up, to see it. So when you and I, hopefully someday, we'll take a, a walk and watch a sunset, and we watch the, the day disappear, and the light flash up after the sun goes down, and we look at each other, the three of us, and we go, oh. and everything seems to be there at once. Life, death, up down, in, out, light, darkness, dreams, waking state, everything seems to be there. That's quality that came from that. Uh, Same thing with seeing the birth of a child or any other, eventually, eventually, and if you don't mind, I'm going to use a prop here. I'll describe it for people who can't see it. And I'm going to use some Kabbalistic terms just so I can bring in some cross-cultural kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm holding up a stone, right? I'm holding up this squarish stone. <clears throat> when I let this stone, that's my ship's clock telling me all is well. <laughs> <laughs> when I let this stone be itself, which means I'm no longer projecting my psychological needs of the stones, my prior idea of what a stone is and isn't, but as much as possible, not even in an idealized way, let it be itself. 
when my consciousness is tuned enough, when I'm calm enough and when I'm open enough, then two things happen simultaneously. Because non-duality means everything is one and everything is separate simultaneously. And that the oneness of non-duality takes in unity and separateness at the same time. So when I look at this stone and I allow it to be itself, two things happen. One is that it's itself and not anything else. It, it is itself and nothing else. It doesn't echo anything. It's no longer in the symbolic world. It's not a symbol for heaviness. It's not a symbol for throwing. It's not a symbol for a particular geological age. It's itself. And simultaneously to that, what happens is it's connected to everything. I see the universe in it. And by seeing the universe, I don't mean that metaphorically. I don't see galaxies and Mars and, and Saturn's moons and all of that. That sense of the sunset, that sense of the Cezanne that takes in everything, that sense of beauty, which is what quality is, it's where beauty comes from, I get that too. That flashes out and the stone is now everything, inclu and including being itself and only itself. In our work, we call that making this a Briatic object. Mm. One of the universes of Bria, which is an isness universe, among many, many other things. So, when I look out at my land here, I have a small pond over here and trees, I'm looking straight out, and I'm not overly... Mm, uh, preoccupied uh, by my suffering. The bark on the tree is alive and shows me life itself. And the geese that we'd like to get rid of and the ducks that we have are just, it's the same thing. So great artists, that's why we love great artists. We go there and we say, damn, how did they do that? How do they, they bring us there? And we stand in awe, not because of only that art. They brought us to the plenum. They brought us to that strata that reveals the universe. And it's a beautiful thing. That seems to me to be the, the, the point of awakening, to see the world that way to think that you have some sort of absolute knowledge or some power or some something like that seems uh, really beside the point. Just one last thing. It took me a long time to realize that. I've been working at this since I was 17. So, you know, I, I always I always hesitate. I always hesitate telling students and things like that speaking from who i am now only and say well it's only a, it's about love that's what it's about buddy it's just about love that's true but if i if someone had said that to me back when i was working on my path in that way 
it's not that I would have hated it, although with my personality, I probably would have hated it. But more like I wouldn't have understood what to do. I would have said, okay, I'll admit it's love. I don't feel love like you're talking about it. What should I do? So the path that I've created has always been uh, giving people the tools so that they could actually do this in a multitude of ways because our egos need that kind of healing. Thank you. Um, one of the one of the points that struck me in the non-dual shaman um, was about uh, <clears throat> you write astral communication begets inequality. Astral communication begets inequality. But this, uh, but from that, my mind expanded to the principle of inequality hmm. in spiritual practice and spiritual understanding, etc. And um, um, without telling you my view, I'd like to hear your view about how inequality. Well, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll admit to my view that inequality can be an obstacle. Let's put it that way. And, um, uh, but I think it's a, it's a more profound obstacle than is often appreciated. So um, speak, speak to that, if you will. Okay, I'll, we'll, we'll keep secret your feeling that it's an obstacle. We won't <laughs> let anybody know about that. Okay. <laughs> I, I had the video. <laughs> the radical insight. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm in your camp completely. But um, we all know we all know that unless it's carefully cultivated, um, the nature of human relationships is one where inequality uh, comes in at a, at, a, at a whisper, right? And sometimes that's okay, you know, parent and child, as long as they don't think it's essential inequality. You know, you have to do what I say because I'm the parent. You have to go to bed now. It's different from what's wrong with you that you don't want to go to bed. There must be something wrong with you that you want to stay up and just dance around or whatever it is. Where So inequality that becomes an obstacle to people is not, is not okay. Inequality that is not an obstacle is not so much of a problem in spiritual work it often attracts very charismatic people as teachers real danger there the first person who made an impact on me was a guy named bishop guy you guys are getting me to tell these stories that i haven't thought of it bishop nakajima I went to this apartment. The next time I was at that apartment, it was about 20 people and Chugim Trungpa. He had just come to the United States and he talked to like 20 people. And we sat there with Rick. Rick that, 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 you know. Anyway, before that was Bishop Nakajima. I got my first Zafu, my sitting pillow from him. Bishop Nakajima, if there's such a thing as charisma, 
and it's a scale of one to ten. Bishop Nakajima was minus eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> my kind of guy. <laughs> Paul was my kind of guy too. He he didn't emanate anything. He sat on his pillow. He said, "Oh, you can sit on your pillow and you can sit there like this." He didn't emanate anything. And it kind of blew me away. I said, you know, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Leo sun sign, sun and brightness and all that stuff. And although I'm actually an introvert and somewhat shy, actually, I like being alone in my laboratory here working on things. But I watched this guy and he's never, as you can see, I'm remembering his name from 50 years ago because <clears throat> a healthier part of me wanted to be like him. I also wanted to be like the stars, you know, the Ramdasses and the, not really, <laughs> I shudder now, but then I might have had, you know, but the other part of my soul wanted to be Bishop Nakajima to be so. So I, I, so let me, let me just talk in general instead of talking about myself. There's no question that inequality, when it's, when it is protecting the teacher and keeping the student at bay in subtle ways that the student doesn't notice and the teacher doesn't notice is deleterious to the spiritual search. Inequality itself as a feature of the universe, a feature of the continuity, is not essentially bad or good. It's a thing. There are big mountains and small mountains. Dogen was a big mountain. You know, there are people who are smaller mountains, like me. So, it's so that that's what I that's what I think about that. I always try to present myself as a teacher as with the real me. I really don't I use myself as an example because it would pain me too much to make distance between myself and other people if they think that I'm something that they can't be or are not. It would physically pain, it physically pain me. Every teacher, I wanted to do this once. I proposed it to, uh, I don't know, to uh, Stefan Rechner and, uh, from Omega, that teachers needed some psychotherapy, that, that the main teachers should get together and work on for instance, as a topic, the need to be adored. Hmm. Well, that would be really good because every teacher wants to be adored. Every teacher, not only spiritual teachers, every teacher who's giving wants on some level their students to say, oh, you're so... Now, people say that to me, they're grateful, but adored is different. Adored is when... It hurts me 
because they were not they would not be seeing me as a full person with all of my imperfections and perfections and selfishness and courage and all the different things that I am if they want to love that that's great I really could use that and then I could love them the way they are and they really could use that but if you want to be adored if it's even if it's unconscious and and that's just going to serve to, as the Talmud says, put obstacles before the blind. And that's a sin. Thank you. That was that was very clear. Good, good. Have you encountered that in your own life, the, the inequality situation? And has oh, it been in so many ways? Of course, I used to teach briefly at a university. Um, I've certainly uh, taught, um, you know, or tried to pass on what I got from my teacher. And, um, uh, I have the, uh, the very first time I conducted a meeting, um, and I was trying to create myself as an object of adoration in the most pathetic way, as I look back on it. Uh, the most ineffective way uh, the universe provided someone in that meeting who, <laughs> who took me down, you know, um, with skill, yeah. not, not, not impersonal skill, I think, but, but I, I needed, I needed that. Yeah. I needed to be taken you know, down. At the same time, I just want to put in a, uh, a, uh, a commercial for compassion. <laughs> you know the, the fact that that you did that uh-huh. as embarrassing as it might have been when you were when you were revealed and revealed to yourself and the fact that i did it yeah uh, when i was so on and so on we also even if it's in retrospect have to have incredible compassion for ourselves we're just imperfect beings that's part of the nature of being human and um um, you know, that's what we do sometimes. And then we make amends to the universe and we do our next best thing until such time as we fail again. And then we make amends and we stand. We, we have a little saying in the school. We say, we're the lineage of people who fall down and get up. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. I like it. There, there's a, a, uh, expression you use in the, uh, uh, a book about in relationship to the ego, having everything on the table. Yes. And, and I, I appreciate that because it's like, you don't, I mean, this is, this gets back to this question of like trying to forcibly change the ego when things are on the table, our imperfections are there, but they don't necessarily go away. They're part of us, but we can attain to a realm of choice as to whether we, enact them or not whereas when, when they're not on the table and they're under the surface they tend to act uh with or without our presence absolutely that's exactly that's, that's a great description of it putting something on the table and and you know i've had students who misunderstand that metaphor because they think oh i'll just put it on the table thank god i'm finished with that which is putting it on the table means you're willing to have a relationship with it it means you're willing to see it, to let it come out of the miasmatic 
place that it's in your mind, out of solutions, speaking chemically, it's you're allowing it to crystallize out of the solution so that you can see it and say, oh, there's that behavior, there's, that's, there's that thing that I do. Then you have, as you just put it perfectly, you begin to have choice. Well, I'm going to activate this now. I'm just going to not activate it. Uh, you know, in my own path, I'm working on things that I'm trying to put on the table now that are so big and that have felt like me for so long that I'm finding it very difficult to have that moment of choice come before I choose it. You know what I mean? I get it right after I activate this part of my personality. So because it's it's so it's so much in the fiber of what I'm working with, uh, the s smaller things I, I can do pretty easily. So putting something on the table in, in that way is uh, it's a great practice. If you're willing to have a relationship with everything that's there. In fact, I'm going to be giving a course on this soon. I decided I was going to give a course on all the meditations that I created um, for the public, uh, not just people who have been in the school. I haven't done that in 40 years. So I decided part of my swan song to uh, start, start <laughs> doing that, to uh, send things, uh, let, let people know about all the different meditations I've created and on the tables, one of them. Some of them are just reframings and metaphors. Yeah, I, I think the, the on the table is uh, uh, particularly powerful because it's it, it changes, it really changes the um, dynamic of how we relate to uh, the egoic part of ourselves. Uh, <clears throat> it, it's, it's like, I, I think that there's a tendency to, uh, at least I've had for myself to be at war with myself or to try to, you know, to want to change things. And, <laughs> and from that place, we really don't know what to do, but simply being present to the arising, which in our fourth way world is, you know, referred to as self-observation, being present to the arising without engaging uh, <clears throat> is it, a practice. I mean, it, it obviously, <laughs> You know, you don't just magically flip a switch and you do that. It, 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 it's a it's a practice and and uh, takes takes time to cultivate. But having that kind of space means that we're able to have the possibility of choice. And the interesting question is then, where does that choice come from? Who's who's making that choice at that level? Well, <clears throat> I can tell you what I think about that. Um. How can I put this? In, um, in Pure Land Buddhism, um, which is a form of Buddhism that arose, I guess, around the 13th century sometime, <clears throat> that is a chanting Buddhism, mm -hmm. right? So uh, it's based around uh, the Lotus Sutra. And um, the main central practice although there are many, many subtleties around this practice, enormous, is to chant uh, Namu Amida Butsu, which means basically <clears throat> I uh, 
take refuge in Amida Buddha. Amen. So in that form of, of, of uh, Buddhism, we, it, there's an esoteric or original meaning of it. And then of course it becomes popularized where people feel that they can be reborn in the pure land after they die. That's not the part I'm talking about. That was more like Renyo and although that's, but Shinran, who was the main disciple of Honan, who was the main guy who I listened to, he was really the genius of that path, really understood that the pure land is right here. Uh, now, if we can access it. So one of the realizations of uh, the pure land path is understanding that we are Banbo. We are foolish beings and that our foolishness is eternal. <laughs> Sounds like uh, it, that could be very depressing, but it's actually not. It's actually enormously freeing. Uh, there's a, uh, a term called Shinjin, which means uh, settlement, great settlement. It's when you stop fighting. You stop fighting that moment and you go, well, I'm not a foolish being or I'm less foolish than I was. And the, the, the continuity says, not continuity, let's not use that word. The, the idea is someday I'll be no foolishness at all. Um, but the realization of being a bonbo means, you know what? I'm foolish. I'm just an imperfect being and I will be imperfect uh, forever. And instead of that being terrible, it's a relief as you then can say, Namu Amida Butsu, I take refuge not in self power, but in other power. So the first presentation of that path is dualistic. There's Amida, and then there's me, and I take refuge in that power. I'm coming around to answering your question from my perspective. At some point, as you do this practices, practice, one of the things that you realize is that the only reason you can see your imperfection is because of the non-dual nature of human life, which means that the presence of Amida in you lets you see the imperfection. If there was no contrast, you wouldn't know you were imperfect. You would just think, hey, that's okay. That's reality. I'm not an idiot. I, this is the, there's no such thing as idiot. I'm me or whatever kind of egoic statement the next politician is going to make in some manner. So we begin to realize that Amida already in us is not only calling to us, he's already there, that Amida force, that Amida dimension, right? We don't, we don't have to personify it any longer. That Amida dimension is already there calling us to awaken and it, and we're already awakening because we're awakening to our imperfections and we're seeing them. The Flower Ornament Sutra, another great Buddhist sutra, one of my favorites, says that enlightened people 
are those who are greatly enlightened about their delusions. <laughs> Unenlightened people are greatly deluded about their enlightenment. The first statement is my personal motto for myself internally about awakening. When I am aware of all of my delusions, instead of being, which is another way to say on the table, right? I'm free. I'm not free of them. As you said before, Stuart, I'm free with them. I'm free with them. So who's doing that? We could say Amita's doing that. And the level of saying Amita's doing that is that type of Amita where we've already left the dualistic only perspective, although I like the dualistic perspective too. It's great comfort sometimes. We've left that and realize that part of our imperfectness is also our greatness, that the Buddha nature is already existent in us. And that's the thing that moves the world and moves us in a very different way than our unhealed ego moves us. Further, just to not leave that with a step that people might think that's the end, eventually we realize that the healed and unhealed ego are part of our Buddha nature. Anyway, that's who I think is doing it. <laughs> yeah, so, so I think the, uh, and this is, this is probably more has the valence of an egoic question is, is that, is that doer, is that, Amita, the the doer, unique in each of us, or is it uh, uh, the same in each of us? Um, The the uh, mm, 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 mm. let me see. I can read you. I have an unpublished thing here of Suzuki Roshi. Uh, It was only unpublished because it was never finished. wasn't good. Whatever. I thought it was pretty damn good. But I just happened to be reading this sentence the other day. I'm going to take a minute and see if I can find this. It's, 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 it's Suzuki Roshi's commentary on some koans. Mm-hmm. Ah, here it is. I found it. He's answering something about this whole thing, which a koan, which I won't go into. Last sentence. The Buddha nature is quite personal to you and essential to all existence. Good answer. I thought so. (laughs) 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 He's had that handy, huh? That's that's pretty good. I gotta be, I gotta be impressed by that. Right. (laughs) And everyone, you heard it here first. (laughs) You took books of my guides. Yeah. My angels and sometimes my devils. So, so the uh, another notion that. comes up partly in the note uh, in relationship to healing and we've touched on it with um artistry and spiritual teachers is this notion of transmission and you describe in order to be capable of transmitting this level of understanding one has to be able to inhabit it uh, and you even use the example of uh, power objects and uh you know uh rituals and things like that that 
you can imbue something. I think you mentioned your favorite are some wine glasses that you have. Uh, <laughs> that that anything can be imbued. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Duralex, Duralex. It's a it's an inexpensive French glass maker called Duralex. It's tempered glass, so you can put hot stuff in it. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So so anything can be a vehicle for this transmission uh, with the would the right word be intention? I mean, to be to inhabit the space, is it intention or is the transmission just by your your presence with the object from that place imbues it with a you might say an echo that someone else may be able to receive or pick up on? It's a very interesting question. <clears throat> Let me think about this for a second. You know, transmission is a funny thing because <clears throat> everybody, <laughs> all is well. I've got to remember that sometimes because sometimes I think things are not so well. Um, everybody's transmitting all the time. And a lot of what gets transmitted is just terrible. So let's let's discern for a moment that we want to transmit something that's positive, that's spiritually helpful, that is healing in some manner. The more a person knows about themselves, which is another way to say the deeper they're awakening, since it's endlessly deep and goes on forever, it's not a finished thing, the more it takes in the web of... Let's, let's take this. <clears throat> let's say somebody who has a very minor understanding of transmission <clears throat> and themselves thinks that they are going to impart to somebody else something, some idea, some force, some love, whatever it happens to be, but their connection to the web of being is very narrow. So it's still in the subject-object world pretty firmly. Well, now I'm going to transmit to you as a subject, to you as an object, this subject. Well, I'm in dangerous territory <clears throat> because this subject is full of all sorts of contradictions and all sorts of things that I'm not aware of that are still miasmatically floating around my body, mind, spirit. And what are you going to get? You might even get that I'm terrific and that uh, you only need me to be able to survive spiritually. You might get addicted to me or something like that because my understanding. So now let's widen <clears throat> the person who's going to transmit. Let's widen their awareness of the web of being. And now they know themselves that not only do they have more insight into non-duality and how the world is made, but they also see more of their own delusions. They see that, yeah, there's a part of them that's after power. Oh, there's a part of them that wants to be adored. There's a part of them that's afraid. Just a part of them. And there's a part that's courageous and bold and loving and compassionate 
Now they don't have to unconsciously act those things out since they have safe harbor in my own or their own place. And now they're transmitting that other person's going to get something much more honest and authentic. Now gets, now have somebody whose connection to web of being is even bigger where those things that they have noticed are now more firmly on the table. They don't, they're companions, they're allies, they're allies because they're gatekeepers of the difficult parts of the personality. So they're not running around free, causing mayhem, chaos. Now the person's going to get a lot more. This is another way of saying that that person who's going to transmit has worked on themselves so that they are inhabiting the state they want to share. At that point, who's transmitting? It's no longer the small ego that's transmitting. It's not missing the small ego. It's having the small ego. It's still there. And the larger view is there as well. So a subject object is not the operative paradigm at that point. So the first thing that happens in transmission is that there is a separate person being transmitted to, and there's no separate person that's being transmitted to, which is like the original understanding of Darshan, which is to view. Is that, is that clarifying? Yeah, it does. I mean, actually, I, I was flashing as you were saying that on a uh, uh, an esoteric understanding of communion: eat of my uh, body, drink of my blood. You know, is is that all? All we can transmit is the state of being that we are in, and that that is the transmission. Right. And, right. Which is which is a uh, interesting. I mean, it it it. it well, let's say. Um, different people can benefit from different transmissions at different times in their own in their own lives and development. In other words, you don't you don't need you don't need to have. I certainly haven't needed to have the greatest teacher of the age in order to benefit from transmission from different individuals in my life. Things that I didn't get before things that I didn't see about myself. But because, because I lost you for a second. Repeat that. You said you didn't have to have that or you need, or it was helpful. I said, I'm, I meant to say that I didn't and don't have to have the greatest teacher of the age transmit to me. I get, as you said at the beginning of your statement there, uh, people are transmitting all the time. And if you're paying attention to what's being transmitted by by different people, you can benefit from those transmissions. You know, my uh, uh, my uh, dissertation chair when I was getting my PhD had things to transmit to me. They weren't what I got from my spiritual teacher, but they were they were real things. You know, they were they were it it, it opened me to be a bigger person. Right, right. At a certain point, at a certain point, I don't want to give a wrong impression here either. At a certain point, when one is connected to a wide enough web of being, 
And also, when it happens to be your province to do transmission, you know, it's not my province to play cello. I play piano, yeah. I play guitar, I can't play cello. I can't uh, act, I can't do lots of things. Some people have those particular talents. Transmitting on that particular level has to be a uh, something that has been that you've been allowed to do. Either from a dualistic point of view, you've been allowed to do it. You've been given uh, the uh, imprimatur, imprimatur. How do you say that? Imprimatur. Imprimatur. Given that, or uh, karmically, or whatever, because that kind of information coming toward you is different than other levels of information. So transmission is also a level of information that is mm, tendency for it to be wordless and a tendency for it to be many, many multi-leveled at the same time, which doesn't mean it's that wide. It could just be the right seed at the right place that in the person who is at the right moment for them, because yes. giving transmission to someone who's not there is only an egoic activity on the part of the teacher. <laughs> who needs it? <laughs> but if that if those two things meet, then something good can happen. So, so I, uh, in a related question, I I wonder about how, how you see the mode of uh, acting as an antenna. Like if I act as an antenna towards someone. My observation has been that it um, can in some way induce a transmission of sorts or invoke in them that which is to be transmitted by my willingness to receive it in a, in a certain way. Does that make sense? Well, I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, let me repeat that because I may not understand it, but if I do, I'm very intrigued. By acting as an antenna, you mean that you, the same way an antenna picks up television or whatever, you're going to open yourself to a certain uh, level, put yourself in that position to receive that person. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, I can give a concrete example, a mode of practices that our teacher developed and that uh, uh, Rob and I have elaborated involve what we call co-meditation or two-person meditation where you're, um, and some of them have verbal, one, one person is verbalizing and, and talking about something and another person is holding what we call the observer state, or as you would probably call it, being, being in the non-dual state. So then, so then the person who's speaking into that finds what's evoked in them is a different relationship to that content than they had before. I get it. I get it completely. We have a set of exercises that are similar, a little different, which maybe another time we can go into. However, <clears throat> I think it's important I tell you a very uh, seminal story. <clears throat> I was being a healer in the auric tradition, right? The auric tradition, you know, hands-on, you do stuff. With yeah. Like energy healing, yeah. Energy healing, that's it. Thank you. And I was studying and creating my Kabbalistic work. It's very before it was public. As a as a kind of Buddhist and Advaitist, I always kept going back to Judaism because it was my family religion 
my birth religion, and it didn't appeal to me. And I have a kind of counterphobic attitude in me that when I feel aversion to something, I keep going back. I did that with Mozart until I liked him, you know, it's like <laughs> the same thing. So I was working with this and working with this. And this is an actual experience that's one of the experiences that started me on this. So here I have my hands on a person that came in with a problem in their thigh. <clears throat> and I said, I'm going to bring God energy down to this now. And, and suddenly I stopped. I said, wait a minute. Where am I bringing God energy from to? And I realized at that moment that what I needed to do was to receive the already present God energy in this person. And that healing, I named the healing of imminence. And it became the only public healing that we would teach of the Kabbalistic healing array. And the first healing in the series of Kabbalistic healings. And we use that specific, specific, that was a hard word to say, specific <laughs> language. Um, I receive the already present divinity in this person. We don't say the already present divinity in Rob or in Stuart. We don't say that. We, this person is just enough impersonal enough so that we realize we're not dealing with the personal version only ah. of energy. And it's an extremely powerful healing that can be taught in workshops, which is what we did in five minutes. And yet advanced teachers of, the, of that aspect of my work, we've been exploring this healing for 40 years. It gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's very much in the spirit of what you just talked about. And does it heal? You bet. So I'm, I'm, I'm completely behind uh, uh, your experience of, of doing that sort of thing. And we have two persons kinds of stuff, too, which we call the I am path exercises, which another time I'll talk with you about. Oh, that sounds interesting. Well, so that, so, but that's, um, I mean, this is the variety of teachings that you have in the non-dual shaman book um, and your discussion of the, of the variety bespeaks your um, flexibility um, as a healer, I guess, mm -hmm. is the way to put it. And I, and I wonder if, if, you, if you would speak to the... the um, the presence of this healing, this flexibility around healing, this willingness to adopt different, because a lot of healer, a lot of people who believe themselves to be healers and are healers to whatever extent they're healers um, may not be quite so, quite so flexible as I'm, as I'm seeing and hearing you talk about. Yeah. So, so, so discuss that if you would for a moment. No, I think that's a, um, a personal uh, predilection of mine. I've always had, I, I'm an explorer and inventor mm -hmm. and uh, a creative person. And I've always had a problem when people make an industry of 
something that they have discovered. And I mean that spiritually too. Yeah. So somebody has a revelation, let's say the the revelation is uh it's the uh, vagus nerve. And uh everything is going to be the vagus nerve. It's the answer to all questions and so right. on. And I think that me as a as a human being you know, this is a question I've asked myself. I could have just spent my life doing shikantasa, meditating, but I had a, a, a split in myself, which proved to be the a cornucopia of uh, a fertility, which was, on one hand, I loved the pure, pristine aspect of mind alone uh, that Buddhism and Advaita gave me. I didn't have to deal with my psychology. I had to do one thing. I had to sit there. And then that would work for a while. And then it would wear off. And I would need uh, nourishment and sustenance. I would need the arms of God. And I would say, dear God, you know, please help me. You know, I need, I need that. And I'd go and I'd say like, Am I not sticking with one or the other because I'm a flibbity gibbet? You know, am I, what's, what's going on? And I, I realized that there were many different approaches that if I wasn't going to be rigid about it, and I would use myself as an example, that one meditation might deal with I just wrote the whole workshop on this. I have to look at my workshop, see what I said. But um, one uh, meditation might deal with the ego being too small. Another might deal with it's too big. We needed all of these different approaches mm -hmm. to be the most compassionate about the state that human beings are in. So it's a, it's a, just a predilection of mine. It came from my own path. And it came from some belief that uh, of uh, when people make an industry of something, there's usually something else going on uh, where they are connected to it in such a way that um, there's other problems. You know, I could tell you stories. It's like, I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you two stories. Okay, one, I was a cook at a session for a famous Zen master. They're both gone. Both of these people are gone. Can I say names? I don't need to say names. So it came time for my uh, dokusan with the teacher. Mm -hmm. And I had come from a Soto tradition at that time. When I was given permission to teach, it was in Renzai, but Soto. And I was doing shikantaza, right? Shikantaza. Just sitting. This guy was a Renzai teacher. So I come in, he says, what's your practice? <laughs> and I said, shikantaza. And he said, oh, that's not Zen. Get out. Okay. And I left. What did I get from that encounter? I got uh, nothing. I got less than nothing. I got, I'm bad in some way. I'm not really doing Zen in some way. What the hell's wrong with me in some way? 
maybe he's wrong. Now it's more of a split and so on and so on. That's story number one. Story number two, I'm in a session with, uh, and this guy I'll mention his name, Don in Katagiri. And um, we're sitting from 4, 4.30 in the morning till 9 at night, seven days. And uh, my meeting with him turned out to have been at the last day. So I had lots of days to be in hell. I was doing shikantaza, and my understanding of shikantaza at that time was that I, it was no thinking. That's right. That's in my wisdom. That's what I decided Shikantaza was. You'd have no thoughts. So I come into my uh, my meeting, and I said, uh, Roshi, I'm doing Shikantaza, and I have no thoughts, but I have a terrible headache. So he dropped all of Zen at that moment. Of course, it was the real Zen that he kept. He dropped all the trappings and he said, Zen is kindness. He said, come out here. It was still four in the morning, so it was dark in San Francisco and the stars were out. He said, see the stars? He said, go out and look at the stars. Okay. So I left my cushion and everything, and I went outside. I could only tolerate about five minutes of looking at the stars because I thought it was wrong. I thought I wasn't putting in the effort. I wasn't working hard and so on. So that teaching that, uh, that Katagiri gave me has never, ever left me because um, uh, he let go of all of the trappings of what what was the original question? I lost the, the impetus for this for this just now. Do we remember the three of us? That's a good that is a good question. That is a good question. Because I don't think we need it because uh, we've we've all dropped that, at least for this moment. And God bless us all for doing that. Yeah, yeah. So you know, whatever the question was, it's been answered. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh, it was about it. It was about flexibility. 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 There was Katagiri being totally flexible, relating to the moment, and changing my life. The other guy didn't change my life. Yeah, and he injured. He ended up injuring a lot of people. By the way, Mm -hmm. very famous guy injured a lot of people. And and so that's what I'm saying. It was just a mark. His inflexibility was a mark of many other things in his personality that were not worked through. Well, you've you've answered the question in, in a way that I think I suspected you uh, you might, but um, or hoped you might perhaps, because I'm uh, in my own development. You know, I was devoted to my teacher and had a very deep personal relationship for 20 years. When he died, I thought I was supposed to keep just doing what I thought he was doing. And then um, Stuart, Stuart here helped me realize, oh, no, I need to branch out. I need to go to other, other healers. And literally, that's, that's, that's what it was about. And um, 
And so I've been doing that and it has uh, made, made all the difference. But mm. that, but that idea of seeking to cultivate flexibility has been, has been absolutely crucial for me. Absolutely. You know, <clears throat> again, let's listen to the next thing I'm going to say with compassion. Mm-hmm. All of us want certainty. Yeah. We want certainty. We live in a life that is primarily uncertain. Right? My wife fell, changed our lives. People, we've all had people we know die. <clears throat> um the political situation changes to things that we couldn't have anticipated. Um, earthquakes in the middle of the night in Turkey and Syria. Um, uh, people stealing, people murdering, people loving, people just leaving. You know, we live in uncertainty and we all crave certainty. You know, to pretend that we don't crave certainty would be another one of those lies. To know that we crave certainty and to know that it doesn't exist and to be able to find something that transcends both of those things, that's a different story. Yeah. So flexibility has to do with the more we see that things are uncertain, the more we don't rigidify ourselves so that in the cause of not being afraid of life, you know what I mean? I find that in myself all the time. I have a lot of rigidity in my rituals and the way I do things and so on. And uh, the thing that saves me is that I'm attentive. <laughs> I'm attentive to what actually is, <laughs> which is not always what I want. Yeah. Rarely what I want. <laughs> but there seems to be some guiding force. And we can get in touch with that guiding force when we are not... Uh, Oh, fixed in our own small, unhealed ego's view of the world. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I, we want to be uh, sensitive to your time. We've already, yes. we, uh, we, we kind of went over. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm about finished energy wise. Yeah. Get my wife as well. Yeah. So we, we, we really appreciate the uh, time this morning and, uh, 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 the, your work or this is, afternoon for you yeah, your, your afternoon your work is uh really quite compelling and um, thank you very much uh, look we definitely look forward to uh future conversations that'd be great if you'd send me the 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 audio yeah yeah we will it was, when i when i post it up on the web i'll send it to you and if you want the high-res versions and things like that no problem that'd be great you have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Jason Schulman, author of the six-book series, Practical Guides to Enlightenment, Awakening, and Healing. Jason is an American spiritual teacher whose original work springs from his Judaic and Buddhist background. He is the founder of A Society of Souls, the school for non-dual healing and awakening based in the United States and the Netherlands. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.